Good evening, church. I don't know if you've ever uh, lived with somebody that you came to regret. It doesn't count. Don't amen it if it's your spouse. But if in your university years, maybe you share, you did a share house with somebody or you've made the mistake of in order to save money, you and your mates went and got an apartment together. It only lasts about six months before you are no longer mates. Or if uh, maybe it was just in your teenage years and you were grinding against somebody that you lived with that went by the name mother or father. I don't know, but we've all experienced this, sort of living in close quarters with somebody and that leading to a sort of grinding against one another in relationship. That is sort of a, a theme that Paul is speaking to tonight, how Christians can avoid that relationship with the Holy Spirit. Because unlike our human relationships, there's never both of us sort of to blame half and half. It's never, you know, it takes two to tango and therefore we're both to blame. If we as Christians are, as Ephesians 4.30 says tonight, grieving the Holy Spirit, it is never because the Holy Spirit is impatient. It is never because the Holy Spirit has silly rules about the chores of the house. It's never because the Holy Spirit is wrong. Rather, it is because we as Christians, purchased by the blood of Jesus and given the Holy Spirit, are living against our confession, are living inconsistently with how we ought to live. We'll see this in Ephesians 4 tonight, so please do turn there as we continue our uh, series through this tremendous epistle from Paul. And if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I do hope to afterwards stick around for our, our Q&A and say uh, g'day before and after that as well. Uh, I'm Tom if I haven't had the pleasure. But uh, we are going through this series of the book of Ephesians. And tonight our passage finds us in Ephesians 4 verse 25 until the first two verses of chapter 5. And look in verse 30. Paul says that this is going to be one of our thematic ideas for the night under the umbrella under which everything else falls. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What is amazing is that Paul doesn't start out here saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit or you won't make it to the day of redemption. He doesn't start out by saying, don't grieve the Holy Spirit or for you there's no redemption. He doesn't even say, if you walk with the Holy Spirit, then you will get sealed for the day of redemption. There's, there's no sense of what he is commanding us to avoid in this passage. There is no sense that it is, is, the, is the condition upon which we remain in the Holy Spirit. The sealing of the Holy Spirit, we learned back in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, the sealing of the Holy Spirit is a gift of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has died for us and bled for us and purchased us and redeemed us and uh, God who had predestined us then adopts us as his own children and part of that Trinitarian salvation is that it is the Holy Spirit who, in an imagery, he seals the door of the plane on you so that you get home safe. The Holy Spirit is the one who binds you up in Christ and in Christ gives to you the inheritance of the future and all of the blessings that are in salvation. So tonight what he is saying is not, and, and we're just going to get very specific as Paul gets specific, and if you don't like having sins specifically addressed, dirty sins, dark sins, difficult sins, common sins, if you don't like that, rock up somewhere else for the next few weeks in Ephesians and go to church somewhere else and stay there probably because what we're going to be doing is exactly what Paul does from now into chapter 5 right through to even his discussion of men and women in marriage and children and, 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 and parents. We're going to be addressing sins very specifically. But what I don't want anybody to hear, which is what Paul is not saying, is that if you do these good enough, 
you get to be assured that you have redemption. That if you do these good enough, you get the Holy Spirit or you, you attain some kind of blessing from God for salvation. That is not the point. The point is rather on the, on the back end of everything we've said in Ephesians 1 through 3. As Paul expounded the gospel and told us all of the richness of God's grace for us in Jesus, which does not depend on how much we've done for him or how good we've been, but merely depends on Jesus, whom we receive blessings from by faith alone. Since, he says, since you have been saved, since you do have an eternal life, since you do have an incorruptible salvation taking you to heaven when you die, let me see your walk be consistent with your claim to salvation. So look in verse 25, and this is what the Apostle Paul says from his house arrest in Rome. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that, you may, that, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and ranger, ranger? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as his beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant word in our midst this evening. Amen. Look, first of all, I'll explain to you the, the, the structure because it kind of just feels like, like Paul is thinking of people in the church and then just rattling off their sins and there's not much structure to this, but in fact there is. He basically takes five different vices, what we call vices, that is sins, and he says, don't do this, instead do this, and here's the reason why. And he does that five times. He says, don't do this, instead do this, and here's the reason why. And he goes through that in a five-fold process. Now, this, is, this is in the context of what he was telling us last week, that as Christians, you have come to Jesus, and by faith in Jesus, and by the process of a renewed mind, what you are doing is taking off the old clothes, taking off the old lifestyle, taking off the old sin, and throwing them away, and being dressed and clothed in the new, new outfit that God gives to us in Jesus, which is righteousness, and holiness, and helpfulness, and love. It, it's as if Paul is saying in this section, change your wardrobe. I know, some of us are old, and, old enough in the room to have lived through the 80s, and when your children or grandchildren or friends find old photos of you, one of the first questions, what in the world did you do to your hair? Mum, that's called a perm, it was awesome, Sandy on Grease Lightning did it too. Uh, or, or we look back at the dads and go, Dad, why are the jeans so tight? 
that's come back around in fashion again. Dad, why that shirt? Why You would be pulled up if you were a girl wearing that. Why are you wearing such a horrible thing? Or, or maybe we just look a few years ago into our teenage years and a memory pops up on social media and we think, what in the world was I wearing? We've all gone through phases. Some of us are still in the real awkward phase. Not pointing any fingers, just, just extending grace in the Lord Jesus. But we all go through times that when we look back, we think, what was I wearing? And if you tried to go back and put them on now and walk out into the family room, hopefully somebody would stop you and say, oh, love, you've, you've, you've progressed from that. Let's not do this again, right? <laughs> I tried on my, my wedding suit the other week. Got some weddings at Hope coming up in the next uh, couple months. And I tried on my green velvet wedding suit. And that's as far as I got. I tried on my, my wedding suit and took it. It did not fit. And, and here's the big picture of what Paul's telling us tonight. Change your wardrobe. You're wearing some things that belong to your old life. They, they don't fit you anymore. They're far too baggy. They're far too messy and disgusting and dirty. Or they're far too tight. Please put something else on. That doesn't classify as pants, right? Paul is saying, change your wardrobe. Take off the old things and get dressed up in a suit that, uh, that is consistent and that, uh, that fits the new lifestyle, the new life that you have in Jesus Christ. So we're going to see, first of all, he says, put off lies, put on truth. Look at verse 25. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Remember the, the structure. It's going to be put something off, put something on, and then he gives us the reason. What he's told us to take off here is something so obvious, no one would actually think that God is okay with lying. No one's going to go and, and sort of erase that one of the Ten Commandments and say Christians can lie. But Paul is a pastor. He's not just some scholar theologian. He knows that Christians are not simply people who read something in the Bible once or get preached about something from the Bible once and then just always live consistently. Amen, anybody? He knows that we need the continual reminder, even of the basic concepts and themes. And so he says here, having put off falsehood, it's, he, he's being generous. He's assuming they've committed to a life of stop lying. Okay, he's assuming that's a, that's a present tense, having put off falsehood. And if we have not, then it comes to us as an imperative. Put off the telling of lies. Sometimes we tell lies to impress other people that we've just met or that we are mates with, but we want to one-up the stories. Sometimes we lie in order to excuse ourselves for failings. There is just an honest flaw in our behavior or personality, and we lie to sort of cover it up and, and make it look like something else. We lie to get attention from people. In order to extract sympathy from people, we make up sob stories. We pretend something has happened to us, or we, or we make up a story so that we get sympathy. Or sometimes we are just lying in order to hide the truth of what is actually going on. So the pastor doesn't actually know what I'm doing. So my Christian friend doesn't actually know who I'm spending my late at night time with, etc., etc. We, we lie for all sorts of different reasons. And Paul is saying, put off the lies. Instead, he says, take off the dress of lying, put on the robe of telling the truth. Speak, let each one speak the truth to his neighbor. Engage in truth. Again, not a mind-blowing concept for any Christian. The Bible says we should tell the truth. Of, of course, we're familiar. But here again is the encouragement of Paul to do what we know we ought to do. Be 
honest. If your situation and lifestyle or your, your income or your current situation in life is pretty humble, don't lie to make it look better than it is. Bend the knee to God's providence and be honest. If your story is less impressive than theirs, don't lie to have the one up. Let him have the coolest story or her have the coolest story. If you are late because of who you are as a person, do not say it is because you had to stop and help the queen cross the road or some kind of virtuous story. Don't, don't lie. Just accept I, I ran late. It's who I am. I'm working on it, but probably not. <clears throat> if you're insecure with who you are and you want the attention and you want the sympathy, don't, don't lie. Do not sin by lying to get attention, but take your needs to the Lord who is always listening. Confess your sin or your hurts to those who love you and speak honestly about the need for help because one of the common themes in scripture towards those who lie, the Bible, the Bible warns your lies will find you out. When you tell lies, you're always tying a piece of string to one thing and then another so that you remember what you've said and what lies you've told and eventually you end up tripping over them and your life starts pulling apart. If you're in sin, admit it. Confess it to the Lord, tell it to a friend, lay it out openly. Don't dig the hole of your life deeper and deeper with more and more lies. Speak the truth to your neighbors. And this is the reason that he gives us. We said every command is stop this or take this off, put this on, and here's the reason. And here's the reason that Paul gives us for telling the truth. He says, because, end of verse 25, for we are members of one another. We are members of one another. You wouldn't shoot down a plane that you were in. You wouldn't drop a grenade into the bunker that your teammates are in. You wouldn't sabotage a job or task that your company is working on. You wouldn't sabotage your own business. You would not send in a big shoulder barge and tackle your own halfback off the scrum. And what he's saying is that when Christians are lying to each other, it's, it's bad enough that you engage in lying to outsiders, but when you are lying to each other, you're committing this kind of corporate bodily suicide. Do you know what it's called when organs send the wrong messages to each other in the human body? It's called dysfunction. It leads to a, a systemic organ failure and death. It's, it's sometimes an autoimmune disease that the, the brain and the glands tell the, tell the, 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 the autoimmune the immune system to attack its own body. This miscommunication in, in such, a, such an organic, such a lively bodily co-membership situation is nothing short of suicidal. And so Paul says, don't lie to each other because you are one body. You are one thing, one, one being. He's going back to what he said in previous chapters, that in Jesus Christ, we have union with the Son of God and all the blessings from him. But one of the blessings of being one with Jesus is that we're one with one another, that we should consider ourselves as, as incorporated, as, as one body, as so intimately related, that turning to, to the side of each other and, and lying is not in fact so safe as lying to somebody outside of the body. It, it's kind of like dropping a grenade or using a rocket launcher within the same fuselage of the, the plane that you're in. It's going to turn out bad even for you. So here's Paul's warning. Do not lie to each other. You are in one body. Rather, use your speech to give life. 
Use your speech to communicate truth so that you do not grieve the Holy Spirit who has sealed you for the day of redemption. Secondly, look at verse 26 and 27. Tell the truth. Verse 26 and 27 then we see that he's telling us put off sinful anger and put on sinless anger. Verse 26 and 7. Be angry. Amen, somebody. Be angry and do not sin. All right, can you amen that too? Do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And then verse 27 will be the reason. Here's what he's saying. He's saying do not sin in your moments of anger. We love to talk about, well, it was holy anger. It was righteous anger. But if, if what it leads you to do is a sin, then it's not righteous anger. If the thing you are annoyed about is not godly, then it's not righteous anger. If, if the motivation that, that led to your anger is not holy, then it can't be righteous anger. So, so sometimes we get in a habit of just asking the question, is this something that it's good to be angry about? Is this an evil thing? As we, we agree with the psalmist who says, uh, uh, all you who love the Lord hate evil. As we remember that and we go, well, well, here's an evil thing. I'm angry about it and I hate it. That's not the only question. The only question is not just what are you angry about. It's why are you angry about it? And what is that anger leading you to do? Paul, Paul, Paul is eradicating here any allowance of us saying or, or excusing ourselves, saying, well, it was righteous anger, it was, it was holy anger, Jesus would have had this anger, he turned over the tables, you know, he had this, this livid rage that was called seething anger in Mark 3 when he looked around at the self-righteous Pharisee, I didn't mean to point at you when I said self-righteous Pharisees, pray about it, maybe, uh, and, and, and he's, he looks at these people who would prefer a man suffer than be healed on the Sabbath, and Jesus looks at them seething with anger. If we feel we have that kind of anger, however we're led to do things like be violent against undeserving people, speak harshly against our family members and especially children, lie to your employer, misrepresent other people as you're swinging around in rage, break biblical commands, or breed division in a local church, if your holy anger leads you to do any of those things, it's not holy anger. Or, if the cause of your anger is sinful, that it's actually coming from envy, or from covetousness, or jealousy, or it's simply because you're impatient and you're losing your temper, or it's because you have a general ignorance of God's commands, you, you have a good intention, you just don't know that the Bible says you're not supposed to do X, Y, or Z, that would be immaturity and sin. Or, if you're taking an action on the basis of something you've heard secondhand. Instead of going to the person you need to communicate to calmly, you take the secondhand information, and whether it's true or not, you act on it in anger, that is sin. We should only be ever responding or reacting to first-hand information confessed from people. So, so all in, in this way, if, if our motivation or our resultant act is not holy, then even if we're angry at the right things, we are committing sin in our anger. So here's what Paul says. He says, be angry and do not sin. How do we do that? First of all, the question, what are you angry about? What are you angry? What does the Bible give us, give us reasonable freedom and even, even call it righteousness to be angry about? 
there's a, there's a large spectrum of things. I mean, Psalm 97 did say, if you love the Lord, hate evil. That's, that's a pretty, pretty broad sweeping statement. Some of the things that we pick up from Proverbs, Psalms, uh, the life of Paul, the life of Jesus would include idolatry, mistreatment of people, injustice against victims, false worship, hypocrisy in religion, the breaking up of families, government tyranny, all of these things, very good to be angry, even seething about. But the next question becomes all important. Why are you angry about that? Why are you angry about something that, granted, God is angry about? Psalm 4.4 says this. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts Ponder in your hearts on your own beds. This is the psalm that Paul is quoting in Ephesians 4. In other words, the psalmist says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder it in your hearts on your own beds. If you are unable in your anger to ponder on your motivations, if you are not in the mindset to be able to take some deep breaths, think about it, and ponder the logical reasons and, and, and sub-clauses of your anger, then the short answer is you're angry and sinning. You're not clear-headed. You're not sober-minded. The, the red mist has come up and you're just about to start firing. So if you're angry about something, go and ponder it. Get into some introspection and some consideration and figure it out. And if you can't do that, if you're unable to think clearly, then conclude that it is sinful anger. Or, of course, the question is then, what does it lead me to do? What am I angry about? Maybe that's a godly thing. Now, why am I angry? Yes, I'm able to ponder it and consider it, and I can see it's a godly motivation. The third question is, what does it make you do? Because Psalm 4.4 says, be angry, don't sin. Ponder it in your heart, on your bed, and be silent. If your anger that feels like righteous anger, completely excludes the possibility of you being silent. You need to explode. You need to yell. You need to cause a commotion. You need to engage in a clamor. It's not righteous anger. The anger that, 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 that is holy and without sin is able to consider the, the, the reasons, consider your own motivations, consider your own sins, and then make some kind of actionable plan about what we're going to do about what is making you angry. It does not breed lack of self-control, but it comes from self-control. And that's why what Paul says in verse 20, 27, he gives us, uh, sorry, verse 26, he says another sort of command, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, for the literalists in the room, what this doesn't mean is that if it strikes uh, 12 p.m. or uh, 12 a.m. and you want to go home because you and your girlfriend are really having it out, or you and your housemate are sick of each other and about to come to blows, or because you and your spouse are fighting about the same thing over again, or because you and your teenage son or daughter are just fiery at one another, the command does not in literally, uh, literally mean you cannot go to sleep, you cannot go to bed until everything is solved. Let's just acknowledge that if the later you stay up, the less productive that conversation becomes, the more R-rated the language becomes. Sometimes just what you need is to go to sleep, wake up, have a coffee, have a pray, see whether you still hate each other in the morning. It's just, it's just a piece of advice. It, in fact, if you want to take it literally anyway, you shouldn't let it strike about 5.30 while you're still in a disagreement because it says don't let the sun set. 
not go to bed. So, so and I say that as somebody who, who tried in my early years. As I, I was taught that. I was like, you don't let the sun go down. You don't go to bed until you're sold out. It caused no few disagreements or, or worsenings of situations between me and my friends, uh, me and my, my, my girlfriend, fiance at the time, and now my, my wife, Joy. It was my fault, but, but that was an over Here's what Paul means. What Paul means is, in wisdom, basically, if you can't get your anger solved turned into an actionable item and then put onto the to-do list, within a business day, you're probably immature and sinning. If day by day, you're going to bed, you're waking up and you're seething in anger and you're steeping in anger, then it's probably arising from sin and immaturity. Whereas if you're able to be angry about something, ponder it in your heart, in the calmness of your own bed, conclude what the next step is going to be, not explode out in rage, but make a decision, and then the next day have something to do about it. I just need to engage my boss and have that conversation. I need to talk to my coworker and make that, a, make that a discussion. I just need to apologize to my wife or I need to tell my husband what needs to be done. I need to go and engage my teenager calmly. If you can't do that, if you can't sort of get it sorted within a business day, then it's just going to be the flame in the dustbin that burns your whole living uh, uh, area. And so... Be angry, but do not sin. Be careful not to sin, lest you grieve the Holy Spirit with a long burn, seething anger in your relationships. <clears throat> and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, here's the reason. Because you will give an opportunity to the devil. That's what Paul says. Verse 27. Give no opportunity to the devil. This is causative. This is the, the reason that he's telling you not to be angry is because in a very real sense, though sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption, though owned by Jesus Christ, though filled with the Holy Spirit, yet you can give up your mind in such a way that you become not possessed and not puppeteered, but utilized by the devil for his purposes inside the, the, the ministry of a local church to its harm. Calvin said this, I have no doubt that Paul here is warning us to beware lest Satan should take possessions of our mind like an enemy-occupied fortress and do whatever he pleases. He warns us severely, like, like if you were to be walking uh, into, a, into a bullpen wearing a bright red shirt, the loving thing to do, like Paul here, would be to scream, take it off, you're drawing the attention of a formidable enemy. Don't wear that in its presence. Instead, put on this black jacket, take off the red, put on the dark so that you do not get yourself in danger. This is what Paul is saying. And some of us are so sure that our, that our annoyance and our impatience and our sinfulness can be classed as holy anger that we are not seriously considering whether or not we are allowing ourselves to be used, thrown around like a pinball by the devil for his purposes. And we do not, we do not, not consider deeply the reality that we might be grieving the Holy Spirit, that we might be damaging the health of, health of a local church, that we might be, be, be insulting and, and, and cutting down others instead of building up because of our own excuse of our impatience because we call it righteous anger. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then thirdly, we said there's five of these things. Put off this, put on this, here's why. We now move to verse 28 where he says, put off theft, put on generosity. Verse 28. Let, no, let the thief no longer steal, but rather 
let him do labor, honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He's saying, put off thieving. Now, now I would guess that there's probably not people in our room right now who are uh, employed to be thieves. We call them government workers. I'm just joking. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Uh, who, are not, who are not in your nine to five, your bank robbers and your house thieves. Hopefully not. If you are, repent and give your life to Jesus. But what does happen even among Christians are these covert ways of stealing from others that, that maybe you're not fully aware of, but much more likely you're probably aware of, but trying not to think too much about, lest your conscience be pricked. And we're going to do that tonight. Here's what can fall under the umbrella of thieving, even in a regular Christian's life. First of all, stealing from your employer. Studies show that now these days, the largest loss in revenue through theft is not, is not thievery and robbery, is not being held up at gunpoint or knife point, and is not what people pickpocket and throw in their handbag as they leave. The largest, by an enormous margin, loss of revenue is how retail workers, employees, take home either gift cards, money from the till, give freebies to their families, or take home stock out the back door. Far too many people allow themselves a, a stapler here, a few bits of stationery there, a, an item there. I've worked really hard. I, I won't bank the extra hours. I'll just take the perfume. Whatever it be, you can steal by outright taking away from your employer. Or you can steal from your company by leaving early but clocking off the same time by extending your breaks so that while they're paying you to work, you're still sitting down in the lunchroom by taking sick leave dishonestly or otherwise manipulating the system in your advantage. These are ways that we are accepting on the contract. This is how much I'll get paid and this is what I will give back to the company in return and yet we start chiseling off the tops of that so that we get to enjoy longer breaks, extended holidays and long weekends. <clears throat> or we can steal from clients. This would be more the kind of employers that are, or, or, or workers who are going to people's houses or fulfilling uh, 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 quotes and things, that probably tradies or that sort of thing, people who are giving services. And, and you might go to people and uh, uh, give out dodgy, dishonest invoices because they don't know any better. Or leaving them with unfinished jobs that have been paid for or giving dodgy quotes or just outright doing work in the house and taking their belongings. All of these things are not entirely uncommon. Or one way of stealing is what Paul addresses much in the New Testament, sponging off other people's generosity. This is called weaponized incompetence. I could get a license, yes, but I suppose I should go home and look up how to get a license. Oh, I need to get home. Oh, you're offering me a lift home? Thank you, brother. Bless you. Oh, I could get a job, that's right, but, but I suppose I need to go down to, oh, oh, you can pay my rent this week? Bless you, brother. The Lord bless and keep you. Oh, I suppose I should uh, uh, pay for my meal. Oh, where's my wallet? Oh, you'll pay for my meal? Thank you, brother. Bless you. It's this weaponized incompetence that pretends or is unwilling to upskill, work hard, 
contribute and just keep sponging off the goodness of other people. Now, now in the church, I just got to warn you, in the church, this is extremely common by people who leech and travel church to church. I've, I've dealt with this before. People who have come from three or four other churches, sort of hop, skip and a jump, just going along and, and telling the same sob story and getting people to drop off meals late at night and offer clothing and pay their rent and all this kind of thing. Why? Because they just refuse to work hard and they know Christians are nice people. They know that you get rewards if you're a nice person, and so they'll ask you to do something that'll get you some rewards and give them some goods. Be careful. Don't allow people to manipulate out of you, but, but more in line with the passage tonight, do not sponge off other people's generosity when you could otherwise be working for yourself. Or, lastly, in terms of my examples tonight, you can steal more, more Christians that realize are doing this. You can steal from your neighbors, your children, and your future grandchildren, and the children and grandchildren of your neighbors who haven't even been born yet. And you can do that by taking government handouts that you don't actually qualify for, or you take government handouts while refusing to work when you could do so. I first wrote down, this counts as stealing from the government because you're taking government money and when you could be working. But then I realized the government doesn't have any money. They have our money through taxes. They have work pay, uh, workers' money through income tax. They have your grandchildren's money from what the, they will be paying off the debt. When, when the government uh, hands out and passes another $2 billion unemployment package and promises to give money as a stimulus to people, they're not paying it. The workers are paying for it. And because it's such an enormous amount and the increasing uh, national debt, it's our grandchildren that will be still paying off the debt. And it's a form of theft. If you could work but prefer to stay on free handouts, it is stealing from, yes, the government, but to make it more personal, against your neighbours, your father, your brother, your sister, your, your children. They'll be paying for your weaponized incompetence. This is what Paul says, put it off. Despise the lifestyle that is so shameful that would live as a thief. And instead he says, put on hard, honest work with your hands. He says here, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Break a sweat. He also says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says, we urge you to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work hard with your hands as we've instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. There's, there's no shame if you're in a providential season of your life that God has brought you low and you need to reach out for help and the Christians around you and the brothers and sisters help you and meet supplies. But if you are not in need, that is an act of theft. He, apparently the Thessalonians didn't get the, the memo. They just didn't obey Paul enough. They were too soft and kept on giving freebies to the people who refused to work. His, the reason they were doing that was because they were saying, Jesus is about to come back. If I go and print out a resume, by the time I've taken it to the employer, the rapture will happen and will be gone. There's no point in working. Jesus is about to come back. And Paul said, if he's coming back soon, I'd recommend being busy when he comes. And so he says to them again, he says, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he reiterates it. And he says, now he's more harsh. He says, if anyone is not willing to work, stop feeding him. No socialism. 
No communism from the mind of the Apostle Paul. If he will not work, let him not eat. Stop feeding him. Stop, mums, I know you love him. I know he feels like that long lost son that you kind of relate to. Stop giving him freebies if he refuses to contribute to the covenant community. He says, for we hear that there are some among you walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of them and have nothing to do with them so that they may be ashamed. Here's what, here's what Paul is recommending. He's saying, have a hall of shame wall in your church, on the front foyer, any young dudes who refuse to work and keep on mooching off all of the generous grandmas and mothers, make him a hall of shame. Don't let him in. Because he's going to come and sponge in on his weaponized incompetence off of the generosity of the church when there's genuinely impoverished people who need it. That's, that's pretty severe, but that's, that, that's Pastor Paul. Scripture everywhere dishonors the lazy man and the thief. It everywhere honors the honest and hard worker, man and woman. We're in a cursed world. This, this is a fact. People who are thieves just try and cheat the way the world actually is. They, they live in a dreamland. The reality is we're in a cursed world. You don't always get what you want. Life is not easy. And hard work does not always pay off the way you want it to. But God commands you to be content with what he gives, to not fight reality and try and steal what comes from other people in order to fill your own pockets. Reject that lifestyle despise that lifestyle, take it off, throw it away like God despises it, and instead put on hard work. And he gives us a reason here. His reason is so that you may have something to share with those in need. He's, he's going beyond the negative law. The Ten Commandments says, do not steal. But as you exegete and you see the, the commentary that goes on in that passage, for example, in the Reformed Catechisms, they say, this is not merely a command to not steal. It is a command to honor the private property of other people. And it is a command, in fact, to work hard so you're not just not stealing, but in fact doing much better than that and being generous. A lot of people think that the opposite of stealing is not stealing. That's wrong. The opposite of stealing is being generous and giving freely. This is a very practical, very easy idea that we have here. You, you want to you love people? Be generous. Did you want to know how, how mature you are as maybe a young person or maybe whatever you are? Do you want to know how, how actively, actually, objectively loving am I being? Here's the, here's the first question. Are you willing to just work nine to five like everybody else in the history of the world so that you can be generous with other people? Do you go to work, get paid, tithe regularly, and give generously? That's it. When's the last time you shouted somebody a meal? When's the last time you bought somebody else something else instead of just hoping that they're more generous than you? That's, a, that's an easy standard. That's holiness. I remember, well, I know I recall so many times that Christians sort of get into this, this Jesus revolution hippie version of Christianity and go, what I really want to do is be holy so, so I won't work and, and I'll sell my house or I'll stop renting and I'll just go live in my car or I'll sell my car and just live with my donkey and llama or whatever or live on my mum's property, which for some reason is less worldly. And they try and be all holy, not have a job, not have an income, but just give their life to loving on people. Remember I was chatting with one guy once and was talking about this. He quit his job. He was living in his car, but soon to sell his car. 
basically so that he didn't have to get caught up in the things of the world. He said, do you still eat? Yes, do you still get clothed? Yes, who's paying for it? Because it sounds like you're still caught up in the world. You're just making other people pay for it. He said, I'm trying to be like Jesus. Jesus didn't have a house. You know, he said, the fox has somewhere to live, but the son of man has no place to rest his head. Yeah, that's a pretty good argument. How old are you? He said, I'm 24. He said, okay, Jesus had a trade and worked hard till he was at least 30. Try that on. And then once you turn 30, decide whether or not God literally verbally from the sky calls you to be a traveling preacher who gets paid for. Just, just a suggestion. Now, if we were to be like Jesus, get a trade, work hard, find some way, find a need of people around you, fill the need and pray that God brings in the income from that. In other words, we're being, in, be call, being called to be generous. God is calling us to fulfill chapter 5, verse 1. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. As a summary catch-all for everything he's telling us tonight, which applies to everything we are talking about and going to talk about, he says, therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. We, we have a God who does not just not steal from us. We have a God that freely, graciously, mercifully gives us everything that we see in the created order. Gives us everything good about our body and our life. Gives us every blessing we've ever had and richly bestows even more than that, the blessing of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. You become like what you worship. False gods are hilariously dependent on people. You go to... It was Nepal, it was Burma, you see it in Philippines with the Catholics. And these people take their powerful and majestic gods that are sculpted out of beautiful stone and to move it from holy place to holy place, they have to put it on their shoulder and carry it. In fact, this god wouldn't even exist unless a human worker had taken chisel to stone and created the statue. That is even deeper than they realize False gods are inherently, necessarily dependent and selfish from people. We don't have a god like that. Those people become selfish because they worship something that only ever takes. We worship a god that is always generous, abounding in love. I, I loved asking people, it was the Buddhists, it was the, uh, the, the, the Hindus, it was the, even the Catholics in, 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 in the Philippines. You ask them, name one thing that this rock thing, whether it's Mary or, 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 or something else, some other false god, tell me, when's the last time you prayed and in generosity and love it answered your request? I love hearing them say, you know what? I've never experienced that. And being able to tell them there is a God who thrives on his generosity, who loves and lives in a state of continual overflowing in giving. That's our God. If we imitate our God, we don't just not steal. We actually actively, intentionally give in generosity. So do not steal, but be generous. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Fourthly, Paul tells us, put off corrosive speech and put on upbuilding speech. Look at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He says, put off corrosive, corrupting speech. What he's meaning this word corrupting or corrosing, it, 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 corroding, it's the language of a, of a rancid, putrid fish in the Greek. It's disgusting, like a, a fish that you bring up in the net and it's rotting. The sort of thing that when you touch it, you're disgusted. 
That as you, you take it and you throw it on somebody else, they're brought low. They're, they're disgusted. They're insulted. He's speaking about language that is like that. Language that is derogatory, that is degrading, that is down-tearing, that is insulting. That bitterness of speech which corrodes somebody's confidence, the vile language, the derogatory names or words towards others. Now, now of course, the small bracket in here, and all the guys know what I'm talking about, there is a way that some of these categories are in fact a way of lovingly upbuilding a brother, but is not appropriate in our talk to other people, or, or to people that you're not friends with. So, so, so there's ways that we can jeer and we can joke and we can have fun that, that on the surface seem like a teardown, but really it's a sense of camaraderie that encourages, right? Your love, your love language is insults. But what this is talking about is, is not that sort of uh, language that, that actually builds the bond, but is the kind of language that is, is intentionally tearing people down. It can be sexual remarks towards women. It can be insults towards people because of their disabilities. It can be racial slurs to degrade other people. And what it is like is, is poisoning the water source of a small community. It, it gets into every part of their thinking and it, and it tears them down and it removes their confidence. Rather, he tells us, put on speech that edifies, that builds up, that is encouraging, that builds rapport with each other, that grows your affinity and increases somebody's motivation. In other words, use your tongue in a way that heals. Use your words in a way that upbuild and binds up wounds. Use your words like a father coming down alongside a child and kneeling down and putting the arm around the shoulder, telling them, I'm here, I'm going to help. You've got, you've got assistance here. That is what our language and our words should, be, should do. And I love that he says, it's important that he says, at the end of uh, verse, uh, uh, midway through 29, he says, as fits the occasion, as is appropriate. There are some ways to say something extremely upbuilding if it had come from someone else, right? There's something that can be very upbuilding and encouraging if it came from a friend, but you just met the person and mentioned their weight. That wasn't needed. Or there might be encouraging coming from a personal trainer, but not from you, okay? It might be encouraging coming from even somebody from the same gender, but it came from a male to a female and was very awkward or it came from a female to a male and just put everybody off. There's, there's certain things that are appropriate to say to a friend on any given day, but not on their father's funeral. Right? There's, there's ways that you need to be saying, not just is this a good thing to say, but is this an appropriate time, relationship, and place. Right? There's, there's such a thing as something that is appropriate spoken about one-on-one, -on -one, which is extremely inappropriate spoken from the pulpit. For example, McKay was just telling me some of his, his horrible dreams, and no, I'll, I'll leave that. I'll leave that there. Right? We, we, we don't use, we say ever, we need to have the wisdom to be able to consider some things as appropriate on some occasions and not on others. So speak upbuildingly, encouragingly, edifyingly in appropriate ways and times. And the motivation that he gives us put off corrosive speech, put on upbuilding speech, and here's your reason so that you can give grace. So that everybody can walk away from conversations with you and say, I feel better. 
He made fun of me. We, we had a good laugh. He, he had a great joke. I, I was complimented. I was encouraged. My, my efforts were noticed. My personality was encouraged or, or, or I was given wisdom for my situation. You, you want always somebody to walk, be walking away from you and the conversations you had, not thinking how embarrassed they are, how useless they are, how terrible they are, but how blessed they are to have a friend like you speak truth to them. So that we can give grace, just like God imparts grace to us. And then the last category here, number five, he tells us, put off bitter hearts and put on tender hearts. So look at verse 31 and verse 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He says... First of all, take off the bitterness and the hateful hearts which lead to the insults and outbursts. That's what we're trying to avoid here. Hearts towards one another that motivate us to insults, to bitterness, and to angry outbursts and fights. This can breed from, from two things which seem very opposite but are coming from the same bitter heart. Sometimes we're bitter against people because we just despise them. They're everything we hate. Right? Their demeanor, their language, their, their job, their, their dress, the, everything about them just grates on us and annoys us and gets us angry. And so we are bitter hearted towards them. Sometimes we actually despise them because we envy them. They have the spouse we wanted. They have the life we wanted. They have the income we wanted. They have the situation that we wish we had. They have the relationships or the, the prominence or the visibility or, or the value or the respect of other people that I wish I had. And so while these two things look opposite, despising someone or envying someone, they're actually coming from the same heart, which is an, a bitter heart. A bitter heart stews and it brings forth anger. This is the order that Paul gives us here. It stews into wrath. Wrath manifests outwardly as anger. Anger towards each other causes a clamor, which, which is just a word for yelling matches, screaming and throwing candles and cutlery at each other. Yelling. The screaming at each other results in slander, which is untrue things being said and harbored against one another, and malice. You, you walk away angry, believing, made up things about them, or you go and say things about them in slanderous, malicious ways. This is all corrosive and destructive to the people of God. And so Paul simply says, do away with it. You do not realize how endangering, endangering this is for the spiritual community. So if you have any of that, maybe in your marriage, yelling matches. Maybe in your, in your, in your uh, uh, parent-child relationships, bitterness and slander and, and angry words. Maybe in your work between co-workers or employee and employer, if you're yelling or insulting or outbursting at each other, it is always, always resulting from some level of spiritual immaturity and sin. Confess it to the Lord. Say, Lord, I, I'm acting in this way that I'm commanded not to. I don't want to grieve the Spirit by, by covering up my, my sin. So, Lord, please lead me into wisdom. Lead us into tenderheartedness. And that is what Paul next commands. Put off the bitterness and instead have, verse 32, put on, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He goes beyond just saying be kind to one another, which is very important. Being kind to one another is, is fulfilling your neighborly requirements, being warm and friendly to one another, kindness. 
But he goes even further and says, when they fail to be kind and sin against you, forgive. So it's not just refusing the malice, it's stepping forward in kindness and then stepping forward again in a willingness to forgive. And he gives us the reason. Put off the bitterness, put on a tenderheartedness. Why? Here's the reason. Because God has forgiven us in Christ. We've been commanded to imitate God in chapter 5 verse 1. We're his beloved children. We've been commanded to be like him. And how do we be like him? We be like Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Was, was he told to come down and hold us down under the water because of our sin, to insult and to bitterly speak and to wrathfully break out at every individual because of what we've done? Was, was God in heaven being impatient and short-tempered and always burning against every individual in wrath? No. God was tender-hearted, moved with, with bowels of compassion, the KJV says, in order to send his son in mercy so that through him, at no cost to us, at no cost to us whatsoever, Jesus Christ came and fulfilled our debt, did what was needed, and purchased forgiveness for us. That's the reason why you can be forgiven. You ought to be forgiving because we have here this perfect example. But, but here's where Paul ends up. Let's read verse 32 and then chapter 5, 1 and 2 again. The end of verse 32 says, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There is two things that Paul is giving us here in the gospel, and if we don't distinguish them, then we muddy them and confuse them. He is giving us both an example and a good news of atonement. If all he did was give us Jesus as the example, love one another like Jesus loved, be tender to one another like Jesus was, forgive one another like Jesus was, speak lovingly like Jesus did, work hard like Jesus did, be, be upbuilding like Jesus. If that's all he said, we would say, yes, amen, he was the perfect example, but we're just another dead religion. All we have is another prophet showing us a great example, but not actually enabling us out of the pit of our sin, not actually bringing for us atonement for sin. Jesus is, number one, your perfect example. Look at him, study him, pursue him. However, your likeness to Christ, your following his example, is never the grounds for your being a child of God. Your likeness to Christ, your following his example, is never the grounds for your forgiveness. He says it in the opposite order. Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. God in Christ has forgiven you, therefore imitate God as beloved children. He has made you his children by grace, which does not depend on your doing. But then as forgiven children, we are given the perfect example of Jesus by which we are told to follow. But, but never, never feel as, as I hope. I hope that going through this, every one of us has had some area where we can say, I've been sinning with my speech. I've been sinning with my work ethic. I've been sinning with my bitterness. I've been sinning in some way here. Allow the Spirit, instead of being grieved, to grieve you and do the work in your heart of a surgeon to bring you to repentance. And do not grieve the Spirit by trying to approach God on the basis of your obedience to these commands. 
Know that you're forgiven by grace and grace alone through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and then pursue the example of Jesus. And if you're outside of Jesus and you don't have faith in Jesus and this basically just defines your whole life, then know that you are a sinner deserving death who will go to an eternal torment. But the good news of God is not that he gave you a great example and said, follow Jesus, but he gave a sacrifice for your sin and said, trust Jesus. You trust him, you're forgiven. You're made a child, you're given the spirit, then he will do the changing work in your heart. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. We praise you for the way that painfully this, this passage cuts to our heart and, and exposes every single one of us as the, as the double-sided sword of the spirit the scripture is, is, is known to do. It, it, it jabs into each one of us and no one of us is able to read this and be convinced that we are flawless in all the commands here. Father God, would you, would you change us? Would you convict us? Would you make clear where we need to change? And would you transform us so that between now and the day of redemption of Jesus Christ's return, we would be continually, progressively, step by step and day by day, more and more in the likeness of Jesus. Would you, would you refill in our hearts, Lord God, for those who have been weighed down by the burden of feeling guilty for how many of these commands they've failed, would you give to those Christians a renewed fire of assurance in their heart that they are children of God, therefore called to imitate. Not called to imitate so they can be children of God. Father God, I pray for those who are in our midst that do not know Jesus as Savior, who do not trust in him for, for forgiveness, and who are not submitted to him as Lord. Would you give to them, to them in this moment a hope of salvation, a, a faith to place it in Jesus Christ and rely on him so that they can be freed from their sin. They don't have to fear the punishment and death that awaits them, Father God, but they might be able to relate to you through Jesus Christ confident of their salvation, and then be changed, be made one of us, be added to the great temple of the Lord God, this local church. Father God, we thank you for your grace, the presence of your spirit who works in us, and we ask that we would not grieve him, but obey him and follow his leading. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.